So last week we started a new series that is based upon the book that my friend, our friend Brent Hansen just released called Life is Hard, God is Good, Let's Dance. Experiencing real joy in a world gone mad. Well, this week we're going to continue on. We're picking up with chapter six, a place where God walks the earth, finding joy in blasts from the future. Hmm, not past, but future. What could that mean? Let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for another gorgeous South Florida winter day. I know you laugh, God, but this is our winter. We thank you for the hearts you've brought together. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to get to know you a little more today. Please bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in chapter 6, Brand starts off with an interesting observation. Think about it. During Jesus' time on earth, during his earthly ministry, he could have chosen to do any miracle to draw attention to his authority. He could have made everybody who comes to one of his lectures, he could have made them all multimillionaires. He could have done that. Or he could have made everybody who comes to hear him or everybody who ever watches him become famous and powerful. Now, if he had done that, imagine how much that would have been exciting for the Romans. The Romans would have found Jesus the most incredible person around if he went around making everybody rich and famous because that's what the Romans were all about. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, Jesus chose to heal individual people. So, so why? Why did you think that Jesus chose healing? Well, Brandt surmises that when Jesus healed, he gave us an advanced trailer into heaven. As we talked about last week, Brandt does a lot of work for Cure International. It's a Christian medical ministry that provides free, life-saving surgeries for children in developing nations. Surgeries that are just very routine here in the West, but, but they're expensive and they can't get them in developing nations. And so in those societies, those surgeries give children who normally would have been cast aside or considered pariahs or considered cursed or considered monsters by their society. It gives them an opportunity to live a rich and full life. It, it gives them an opportunity to no longer be defined by their deformities, but to be defined as beloved children of God. As Brandt notes, other miracles might be impressive, when you see a child healed, it changes everything. Jesus' healing miracles were a harbinger of the healing to come in the kingdom of God. And that's why Brandt called healing not a blast from the past, but a blast from the future. It's sort of a window into what the kingdom of God, God's kingdom on earth, will look like. And it's a sign that we take now that God is currently at work in our sin-infested world. Because our sin-infested world, and when I say that, what I mean is that, you know, people come into the world, we're broken. We come into the world not wanting to please God. We, we, we come into the world seeking ourselves. And for us in the West, it means one thing. And for people in other parts of the world, it means another. And around the world on a daily basis, there is no shortage of horrific events. 
One parent uh, whose child's legs were healed by the doctors at Cure Hospital, the doctors fix a lot of club foot and a lot of uh, scurvy and things like that. But one, one, one parent said of parents commented that the hospital is a place where God walks the earth. Miracles take place every day. And Brandt said, she's right about that, It's not that the people working in the hospital aren't highly flawed, and you have to remember that. People that belong to an ecclesia, belong to the called out community of God, it's not that we're perfect, we're not even close. We're all highly flawed as people at the hospital are. But it's just that when humans want God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, you can really see it when you see people healed, when you see children healed, especially the reaction from desperate people is, wow, surely God is here. It's an illustration of the fact that God can use any one of us. Jesus said that there's an enemy that roams around in the midst, in our midst, and he comes to steal and kill and destroy. And if you wonder whether that's true, open up your internet browser and just read a headline. You can see it on a daily basis. In this world, we have a mess. In this world, we can guarantee there's going to be trouble. But then Jesus said, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. That's life in the kingdom of God, and it's, it's way better than spectacular. But sadly... We see and hear people who call themselves Christians, tell the world they're Christians, doing some pretty bad things, saying some pretty horrible things, often in the name of Jesus. And you can check me on this, or you can take my word for it. Jesus in the Bible never told anyone to do anything or say anything of the sort. So it's a breath of fresh air and an encouragement to us as believers when we also get to see God's people loving other people as God has commanded. When you drive by and you see somebody on the side of the road and then someone's helping them out, do you feel just a little good about humanity? Wow, someone's helping out. Or when you see somebody working with uh, someone who's down and out or taking one of these uh, homeless folks on the corners, taking them some food or, or giving them a bottle of water to drink, you go, all right. All right, there's some, there's some good in the world. It's a breath of fresh air. It's an encouragement to us as believers when we see God's people loving other people as God has commanded us. And seeing someone healed, seeing their physical body healed as a result of the application of the love of Jesus is an encouragement to everyone because that provides us with a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God for which we all, whether we realize it consciously or not, long. That's chapter six. Now in chapter seven, and I'm not going to get into a lot of the details here. It's really a brand story. But it's about the time my face hit a park truck. Spiritual doesn't mean solemn, but quite the opposite is true. Now, this chapter really spoke to me. I, I've, in case you guys haven't figured this out, I, I tend not to be a very serious person. I don't take much seriously. 
Well, Brandt's kind of the same way. He tells the story of the time that he was in Indonesia after a tsunami. He was there to help the people in Banda Aceh who were recovering from that huge tsunami, tsunami a few years ago. Well, when he was there, there was another American volunteer worker, and he was getting ready to leave. He was a guy from San Diego. And he said to Brandt, hey, listen, I'm leaving. Here's a motorcycle. While you're here, take my motorcycle. You can ride it around, and when you leave, you can give it to somebody else. And Brandt's like, I don't ride motorcycles, but thank you very much. And the guy kept saying, no, you got to, and Brandt kept saying, no, I don't want to, and eventually Brandt accepted it, and he tried to ride. Well, long story short, and hence the title of this chapter, he failed spectacularly. But the way that Brandt handled his very public motorcycle riding failure is the point of the chapter. He handled it with grace, and he handled it with humor. And the humor of the Jesus follower is the point of the chapter. Because Brand observed that people who are actually, not people who tell you they are, but people who are actually spiritually mature, do something that spiritual phonies, spiritual posers do not. Spiritually mature people laugh, and they laugh a lot. And that's something that we all need to remember. Because we live in a world that is doing everything it possibly can to keep us from laughing. Here's what I mean. I talk to people throughout the week. It's what I like to do. And nearly all of the people I've spoken with over the past, goodness gracious, it's got to be a year or two, share with me their fear of the state of our world. Because we are constantly told, again, doesn't matter what side of divide you fall on, we're constantly told that our country is irreparably divided. For the record, I don't believe that it is. I believe that's all we hear, but I don't believe it really is. But the forces that be are doing their best to convince us that the other side, not us, of course, the other side, whoever your us is, the other side, is set on destroying our country as we know it. You only need to click on your news source of choice to see what I'm talking about, right? They're coming for our children. They'd prefer if young people take their own lives. They don't want you to have control over your own body. They don't want you to have a say in educating your own kids. They don't want you to, to have children to able to breathe clean air. They don't care if your children can buy their own home. Just back and forth and back and forth. The histrionics are just volleyed. And every side is convinced about their doomsday vision. In fact... They're so convinced about it, they don't allow laughter anymore. It's not a new phenomenon. The Irish playwright and famous atheist, but amazing source for quotes, George Bernard Shaw, said back in the 1880s that there was an assault on laughter. Here's what he said. Life does not cease to be funny when people die any more than it ceases to be serious when people laugh. Isn't that a great quote? It's almost like, lighten up. But the hysterics in our world and the scolds in our world feel that they can control people's thoughts and behaviors if they can control people's laughter. It's really an interesting phenomenon. In today's world, many of our beloved if I can say that comedians have been silenced. There are some really funny people out there who just don't make jokes anymore because, well, 
they're afraid. They're afraid that they'll be canceled. They, they, they're afraid to dare to challenge people to learn to laugh at some of the ridiculous aspects of human existence. But we have to be able to laugh at ourselves because we're pretty funny sometimes. And sadly, that practice has found its way into the community that we call the church. And I've experienced this phenomenon firsthand. When I first came out to replant this church, the church that was here, I was scolded by, it wasn't a big place, but I was scolded by at least a dozen people who kept on telling me, you need to be more reverent, or you are too joyful when you preach. You're not solemn enough. You're not serious enough. I once served communion, and the person who was playing the piano, the, the noodling under the communion, decided they were going to play the theme from the Peanuts. You know, the Charlie Brown theme? Dun, 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 dun. See, if I had someone sitting up here, they could have just banged that out right there. I got so many emails about that. Oh, how dare you? Charlie Brown in church. I've been scolded so many times, so many occasions by the church police. When I used to have to go to denominational meetings, if I didn't show up in a sport coat and a tie, because everybody knows Jesus and the disciples always wore sport coats and ties, and I failed to stay seated in my chair, quietly sit in my chair for the five-hour duration of the assembly. Those of you who know me know I cannot sit still for five hours. I cannot sit still for one hour. I'll tell you, the joy of the Lord was hard to find in those places, in those ostensibly sacred spaces. But people who've experienced the freedom that comes from being connected to God the Father through Jesus, God the Son, you shouldn't have any problem laughing and smiling. As the Old Testament prophet Nehemiah told God's people in Nehemiah 8, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I'm happy to say that I learned this axiom very early on in my Christian walk. If you follow me on social media, particularly Facebook, because I'm old, you know I share a lot of wisdom from one of my preaching teachers, from Steve Brown. And one of the things I learned early on from Steve is about the laughter of the redeemed. Here's what he says. The surest way that you can determine whether Jesus has left the building or not is to listen for the laughter of God's people. If you have a church community, you have an ecclesia, and there's lots of laughter and there's lots of love, you know that God is in that place. And Stephen taught me that. Steve taught me that. Indeed, the only people in the world who actually have anything at all to laugh about are the followers of Jesus. If you think about it, when we know Jesus... When we've understood our own brokenness and our own imperfections and our own inabilities to be connected to our perfect heavenly father through our thoughts, words, and deeds. But then we learn that notwithstanding our own brokenness and our own sinfulness, God loved us anyway. And then God made a way for us through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God the Son, which we can claim for ourselves by simply turning from the way that we were, that's repentance, and turning to Jesus as our Savior. Jesus, I understand what you did for me on the cross. I want to follow you with my life. I want to make you my Lord and my leader. Once you've done that, then you can know for certain that you have nothing further to worry about. You can know that our God has promised us to, as is written in Hebrews 13, never leave us or forsake us. 
and you can have joy knowing that God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. When we read the Bible, when we read God's word, we can know that even when people do things with intent to harm us, God can use it for good. Check out the story of Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery and lied to their dad that he was killed. Check that story out. As Brand put it, if we really mature and become more Christ-like, we become more childlike, and we begin to really know some things that we need to know in the world. We begin to know that we're not in control of the world. We begin to know that we're important to our Creator, but we also begin to know that we're small and we can't control most of the things that go on in the world, and we certainly can't control how everybody perceives us. But we can know what God thinks of us. And that's that sense of well-being. That's that sense of joy again. And oh yes, we know suffering and hurt are a part of life, and we feel the suffering and hurt too. But we know how all this ends. And all of this ends in a big party in Dad's house. Inside the kingdom of God, the sick find healing, and all is made new. And as a result, God's kingdom will involve much laughter. So there's no reason for us to not start living like that now. Enjoy the laughter. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8, success tip. Embrace the awkward. Much anxiety is caused by the need to manage perceptions. So Brant started this chapter 8 by noticing this. When it comes to living a joyful life, those who are willing to embrace their own awkwardness have a huge advantage. Then he observed that narcissists can't laugh at themselves. I've never heard it put that way, but it makes sense. Narcissism is defined like this, extreme self-involvement to the degree that it makes a person ignore the needs of those around them. So Brand observed that narcissists take themselves with a truly grave seriousness. You ever meet somebody who takes themselves with just such seriousness and you go, dude, get over yourself. To a narcissist, though, everything about life is so serious and so tragic and they simply can't see the folly in life. And they simply can't find any true enjoyment in the folly of life. My wife has come to say, you know, people are going to people. That's what we do, people, people. If you can't enjoy it, if you can't see the humor in it, that is sad. And I don't know about you guys, but that's not the way I want to live. I don't want to live like that. And if you survey the people around you, they don't want you to live that way either because being around a narcissist is insufferable. And narcissism is the natural result of a person who lives as if they are in ultimate control of the world and in ultimate control of others. And that getting their way is the only way that they can fix what ails us. It's such a mindset. It's, it's silly. It's folly. It's a, it's a waste of time. So any life lived for that purpose is a life wasted. The truth is, as Brandt points out, none of us are that important to what's going on in the world. In fact, we can take great comfort in that. We who are 
We, we, are, we are who we are. That's who we are. That's all we have. We're nothing more. We're nothing less. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the work of the great naval philosopher of the last century. This is how he put it. It was brilliant. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. So, who are we? In the most famous song about personal peace in the history of the world, this question was answered. And it was answered like this. Who are we? We are merely sheep. Watch this. In Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm, King David laid it out for us. And here's how he started. Ready? He says this. The Lord is my, what? Shepherd. That makes each of us, what? A sheep. We are sheep tended by the Lord. And as a sheep under the care of the great shepherd, David assured us that we lack nothing. In other words, though we're not all that, we're, we're not all that, we're not, we're not big, we're not huge, we're not important to the world stage, but God loves us anyway. God covers us anyway. God promises to take care of our needs, and we don't need to worry about ourselves. And, and among other things, we needn't worry if we come across as awkward to anybody. This is a tough one. When you're young, you really worry that you're awkward in front of people. When you get a little older and you realize how easy it is to put on a pair of shoes with Velcro laces, you don't care what anybody else thinks. And the pants with the stretchy waistband, man, oh man, we don't need to worry about coming across as awkward anymore. We're just sheep under the care of the great shepherd. And when we're not so wrapped up in ourselves, we can be freed up to love other people, even if it's awkward. And that's a good thing, too, because every time we interact with other humans, it's a risk. We take a risk interacting with other human beings. And to put your heart into anything, to fully commit into anything, is to face exposure. But if we know the important things, or as Brandt put it, we know the big picture, that ultimately we have nothing to fear and that we lack nothing, well, that's the biggest advantage of all. Years ago, there was a man who was trying to be ordained in my former denomination. But certain aspects of his personality made him a target for bullying. And sorry to tell you, young folks who are in the room, bullying does not stop when you become an adult. It just changes a form. Now, I didn't know the guy really well, but I did know that I didn't care for the bullying. So even though I knew I wasn't going to be very popular for doing so, I stood up in his defense. And I took it upon myself to make sure that the bullies did not stand in the way of his ordination. Well, as I suspected, my defense of him didn't earn me any friends among the bullies. But at that point, I didn't care. I knew I was doing the right thing in God's eyes, and I was perfectly fine when the bullies decided to shun me too. Now, I served the Lord in that instance, and it was very, very awkward. It's weird to walk into a room and have most of the people glare at you but the Lord was standing by me. And there's something very freeing in lowering the stakes and knowing that choosing to do something out of unconditional love will always, always win in God's economy, even if it doesn't look like a win in the world's economy. Being willing to sometimes look like a fool, that's actually freeing, believe it or not. 
It's freeing, and it's also in line with a faith that is founded upon humility and trust and childlikeness and a willingness to be uncool. Conversely, do you know what is not freeing? Trying to make our faith always look cool to those who don't believe as we believe. So Brent uses this notion of coolness to refer to the way that we all have a tendency to think of our lives. We think, we think that the world needs us to live in a particular way in order to be accepted so that we can ultimately be loved. And you know, in this aspect, social media is not our friend. There are so many trends that start on social media. Hey, if you want to be loved by all of us, you better do this or look like this or buy this or eat that or whatever. Because the truth is, you can never win that game. We're never really successful at trying to impress strangers with the things that we do, trying to make ourselves look cool. You know, I raised two, two boys, and I always used to tell my sons, don't worry about what they think of you. Truth is, they're not thinking about you at all. Everybody's so caught up in themselves, they're not watching what you're doing. I said, all people really want from you is you. All they want from you is authenticity. All people want from you is love. And all people want from you, then, is friendship. See, once we get rid of giving, trying to impress other people, we can finally speak into their lives as friends. You've heard this expression before, but I've always liked it. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, like that. I don't know who said that. It's probably Ben Franklin or something. Every time it's something like that, it usually starts with Ben Franklin. I always like that one. Once we get over the fear of not looking like, or the fear of, of looking like an idiot, which I'm really comfortable with, and we get comfortable with simply trying to look like ourselves, then God's real power will be manifested through our lives. You don't have to care about what people think of you. If you're somebody who trusts God, care about that. Care about what people think of God. And as Brant said, seeing God work in the lives of someone who isn't otherwise impressive makes God look very, very good. None of us, as broken and flawed as we are, are all that impressive, no matter what we might think. So when God does something amazing through us, then God should get the credit. Again, I like the way that Steve Brown puts it, we ought not to think too highly of ourselves, because the truth is we're all just beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. Well, that makes us look properly vulnerable. That makes us look properly weak. That makes us look realistically awkward. And that's exactly what we need in order to be able to understand, to sincerely speak truth into someone else's life. See, Jesus called us to be God's witnesses, not God's police officers, not God's enforcers, not God's prosecuting attorneys, not God's scolds, not God's palace guards, not God's defenders. He called us to be his witnesses. A witness is a person who saw something and then tells of it. A witness on behalf of God is a person who saw God do something in their life and then tells another person about it. You do not need to be the coolest person in the room to do that. On to chapter 9. I'd like to thank the good Lord and also Butch. God puts even our wounds to work. I'm not going to talk about the Butch story here. It's a pretty funny story. 
But what Brand is doing here is he's drilling down on the awkwardness point from the last chapter. And he points out that in most of our lives, our awkwardness really peaks in like middle or high school. So if you are a middle high school student here today, you're, you're not going to be this awkward all the time. If you feel awkward, it'll, it'll pass. I promise you. Just kind of hang in there. Because if those rest of you have gone through middle and high school, you know that to be true. Which, which is pretty funny when you think about it, because it's often from our middle and high school students that we hear that we as adults are the awkward ones. Isn't that true? Like that's when you're at your most awkward? How many people enjoyed their middle school years? Hmm? That is a tough time of life. Kids always call us awkward, but fear not. Adults, one day they're going to see how very wrong they were. In the book, Brandt goes into detail about his own awkwardness, particularly when he was trying to get a date. It's a funny story. His point was basically this. God's mercy will eventually win out. One time, Brandt awkwardly blurted out to a female friend that he loved her. You imagine how embarrassing that must be? Like you're sitting in a room and you're you know, having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you're watching TV. I love you, right? He's been married to her now for more than 30 years, okay? God blesses this awkwardness. Then Brandt wrote about a short play written by Thornton Wilder. Thornton Wilder was an early 20th century novelist and playwright. And the play was about two men who were among the sick and the blind and the malformed. And they wished to be healed at this sort of magical pool, a pool that was occasionally stirred by an angel. So the first was a desperate man who'd been waiting for healing at the pool for a long, long time. And the second man was a doctor, new to the pond, new to the pool, who'd been faithfully healing others for a long time. But then he came to the, to the pond, to the pool, to heal himself of a long-standing condition. Well, that angel appeared and offered healing, but only to the first man. And when he did that, the doctor objected, and he stated his case. He said to the angel, think of what I might do in love's service, were I but free of this bondage. And the angel answered him, without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. He concludes, in love's service, only the wounded can serve. Steve likes to say, when young seminary students ask him questions or critique what he said, you haven't lived long enough or sinned big enough to have an opinion on the matter. You got to take some hits. You got to get wounded a bit. You have to suffer a bit before you've got any gravitas to speak into the suffering in someone else's life. Brand pointed out that there are things that happen in our lives. Some of them are tragic. Some of them are traumatic. Some of them we'd never, we'd, we'd never ever say, yeah, I'd like to do that again. That was kind of cool. Yeah, we don't say that, but we're thankful for those things nonetheless. I, I joke about this with Beth all the time. As an adult, I've had about eight orthopedic surgeries to repair parts of my body that I've broken, exercising my storied athletic prowess that I'm sure you're all familiar with. Add to that a broken arm, five broken fingers, and a broken nose I received when I was a student. You'd think I'd learn my lesson, wouldn't you? Like, think I'd get into management at this point, but no. But as a result of all these injuries, I get to experience every day a fair amount of discomfort. Now, thankfully, some of my injuries have healed without too much lingering effect other than a scar 
or some swelling to remind me of their occurrence, but my injury to my back, to my spine, has blessed me with the constant companion of pain. You have back pain and nerve pain from your back? Man, what a blessing. It really is. Now, I can assure you that I don't want to re-experience any of my injuries, but I am thankful every day for the things that my injuries have left me with. My pain has actually made me a better pastor. It's made me more sympathetic. It's made me more empathetic to others in pain. And it's always served me as a constant reminder to understand from where my strength comes and my health comes. It comes from God and God alone. Every day, my pain reminds me that I can only do what I do if it is in God's will. When my back was at its worst, and I knew there was nothing I could do other than rest and pray and ask God to heal me and ask God to make my pain tolerable enough to function. If I was ever inclined to forget who really had control over my life, the tiniest twinge of back pain would quickly bring me back to my senses. Our old friend, the Apostle Paul, knew well the power of pain in our lives. Paul actually wrote of his own affliction. We don't know what his affliction was. We don't know what it caused, what it was caused by. We don't know the severity of it. But that kept him up, just focused on God because he'd pledged to God his life and he'd put in God his faith and trust. And here's what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, and in hardships, and in persecutions, and in difficulties. Why, Paul said, for when I am weak, I am actually strong. As we saw last week, God uses all of that for his glory. God puts our wounds to work. Everything that is submitted to him is useful for him. If you've been through a tough time, maybe God wants you to do something with it for his glory. Think about that as we move on to chapter 10, our last chapter for today. Jesus' favorite subject. You know Jesus had a favorite subject? There's something we're all yearning for, and it's about to happen. This is our last chapter for today. Brant brings up Jesus' favorite subject. Do you know what that is? The kingdom of God. Now, because that sounds very religious... Or that sounds very theological. People get very nervous when you start talking about the kingdom of God. But that's the subject Jesus talked about the most. He spoke almost incessantly about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They're used interchangeably. Jesus wanted people to understand that God's kingdom was not far, far away and irrelevant to them. But God's kingdom is near and God's kingdom is even at hand. Brandt defined the kingdom of God as being this. Wherever the things that God wants done, gets done. That's a sign of God's kingdom. I like that a lot. When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, we know it as the Lord's Prayer. If you come from a Catholic church, you know that sleeping, right? It's the first thing he called us to pray for. What does he say? Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Here it is, your kingdom come. While we all have our own kingdoms, some of which might have a small sphere of influence. If you're a father, if you're a parent, you have a kingdom, that's your family. If you teach a class, that's your kingdom. If you lead a company, that's your kingdom. And some people have their own little kingdoms that are a little bit bigger, the CEO of a large company or whatever. But the kingdom of God is something different. The kingdom of God that Jesus described is stunning, and it's life-giving. And Brandt said that once we really understand this, we go from being freaked out by the world or freaked out by the kingdom of God, or bored by the kingdom of God, to loving to talk about the kingdom of God wherever we go and with whomever we meet. And see, it's the kingdom of God that Jesus wanted us to talk about. In fact, Jesus said as much in Luke's gospel. Look in Luke chapter 4. Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Good news is what? Gospel. The gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns, because that is why I was sent. I'm sorry, that's Paul saying that. I have to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns, because that's why I was sent. Sorry, Jesus saying that. Sorry about that. Most people don't understand what the kingdom of God is. And so Jesus kept trying to explain what it is, comparing it to things we can't understand. So you've seen these things before. Matthew chapter 13, 31. The kingdom of heaven, remember the kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. You see what he's doing? Instead of just giving us dry words, theological words, Jesus is describing for us something worth giving everything for, something worth falling in love with. For Jesus, the kingdom is here, isn't just good news, it's the good news. It's the gospel. And sometimes we don't understand that. Back to Cure International, in the, in the Cure Hospital Complex, the, the atmosphere is, is one of life and one of hope and one of beauty and places where you don't feel a lot of those things. Because God is at work through that hospital. Many of the patients and their families, they see it. They see in those hospitals evidence of God. They get a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And when children receive their life-changing surgeries and are told that, usually for the first time in their lives, that they're loved by God and that they're not a curse and that they're not a monster, they see God's kingdom there firsthand. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When God is in charge, healing happens and chaos turns into beauty. Every living person longs to live in the kingdom of God, even if they don't know it yet. And then Brandt provided his, gave us a theory for that statement. He said, we all experience on earth brief glimpses of, brief impressions of, brief flashes of the kingdom of God that we just can't explain. But they leave us wanting more. We see so many things that we, they take our breath away and go, oh, I wish I could do this all the time. I wish I could see this all the time. We have a feeling of longing for something better than this world has to offer. That reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis said. If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Now here Brandt talks about a German word that encapsulates the feeling. Germans do have a word for everything, and this word is Fernweh. Fernweh means far sickness. And, and basically what it means is that feeling you get when you desire something, but you feel like it's far, far away. When I left the law practice a long time ago now, I sensed that feeling in my colleagues. They really had no idea what it meant to leave the law, to go into ministry, to do ministry full-time. I tell people this all the time. I have, I have lawyer relatives that every time I see them, they go, you do this full-time? You get, they pay you? To, to, how does this work? I always pictured my colleagues as I told them I was leaving the law practice as those jailed pirates in Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean who were kind of reaching out through their sell bars. Remember, they're calling the dog to bring him the key, but they're going, we don't know what you're doing, but go, go for us. Fare ye well. About that feeling, C.S. Lewis also said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust, in, if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. This feeling is a result of our deep longing for our real home in the kingdom of God where every tear is wiped away. We may deny the idea of Eden in our minds, but we cannot erase the imprint of Eden from our heart and from our soul. If you get choked up when you watch videos of, of children reuniting with their parents who are serving overseas, or dogs greeting their owners when they come back from deployment, I cry every time I see that. You'll understand that feeling. That's the feeling I'm talking about. We all long for that feeling ourselves, and that's what the kingdom of God promises. Or how about this one? Don't you just melt when you see the videos of a young child who was unable to see, and then they put on those big round glasses, they put them on, and they look around for the first time, and they just start crying. These young children have no idea why they're crying. Like, oh my gosh, this is the world. That's another preview of the healing that God promises in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is here, Jesus said. And then he reached out and healed. That's our true home. And that's what's available to everyone who devotes their life to following Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen? All right, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the encouragement and the strength that your word gives us to equip us to face the challenges that this life throws at us. We pray, God, that you continue to guide us as we discover the beauty of your kingdom here on earth. Father, please give us the ability to meet your calling in our lives as we strive toward your kingdom in everything we do. We love you, God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.